Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are going to talk about how the West was won, or the story of America's westward expansion and the terrible racist colonialism that goes along with all of that. But lots of interesting stories, all this type of thing. We're finally pivoting away from transportation, although it does denote another tedious discussion on the Transcontinental Railroad, and we're going to get more into that because more racism, but... Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be exciting. This is going to be a bit of a long one. Um, the script is kind of long and I have a bunch of clips and it's, it's going to be a fun time though. So this is the Cameron Journal podcast and this is how the West was won. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. fine horse looking round a course gonna find me a pretty woman's love ringle wrangle jingy dong dangle ha got my spurs on my boots and i don't give a hoot gonna find me a pretty woman's love i'll get a dollar's worth of beans a new pair of jeans get a woman to cook and wash and things ringle wrangle jingy dong dangle when I die, I ain't a gonna cry If I have me a pretty woman's love If I have me a pretty woman's love European settlers have been expanding westward since their arrival. For the United States, westward expansion was a national project as articulated in Manifest Destiny, the idea that the country would not be complete until it stretched from coast to coast. Through various purchases and annexations, including the Louisiana Purchase, the annexation of Texas, and the Gadsden Purchase, the United States has continued to expand ever westward until it took its present-day shape. The United States added on several new states until the present 48-state contiguous map was finally finalized in 1912 with the addition of Arizona. It is important to remember that North America was not an empty place with no one living there. 
Native tribes have been living on this continent for thousands of years before Europeans ever arrived. Those tribes had wars, politics, alliances, their own languages and mythologies. In South and Central America, fabulous civilizations flourished before the Spanish arrival in the 14th century. Although the horse had died out in North America, and for reasons that we still don't quite understand, when the Spanish reintroduced the horse to the Americas, it revolutionized travel and allowed the Plains tribes to thrive in new ways. In his titular book, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, a book I hate, but that's another podcast, he explains that while native tribes lived better lives than the European aristocracy, their technological gap left them vulnerable to European explorers. We know the rest of the story, but we'll circle back to it. In this podcast, we're going to talk about how the West was won and the how and why of Westward expansion and its legacy today. So join me on this little wagon train. We're heading to Oregon. There will not be dysentery, I promise. And it's Wagon's Ho. We're heading West. First, I want to talk about some myths about the Old West. Hollywood spent most of the 1940s and 50s building up the myth of the Old West. It created the idea of the lone and independent cowboy, the immigrant in their Conestoga wagon, and the drama of a shootout at high noon. <clears throat> the Old West was a bit more messy than Hollywood would have you believe. John Wayne made his career on westerns, and popular TV shows like Bonanza and Gunsmoke set ranchers, farmers, and others as the heroes of every story, even though the West was far more diverse and more complicated than any media would have you believe. Much of the myths about the American West are true. People did take the Oregon Trail for new homesteads out West, but the true horrors of the journey were not often talked about as much. Disease was common and most families would lose someone on the journey. Unmarked graves dotted the landscapes around the trail. Some people would get lost, never to be seen again. Still others would die in winter or suffer the fate of the Donner Party. Cannibalism. Before the railroad, stagecoaches were a good way to get around, but they were cramped beyond belief, with six to eight passengers inside and possibly one to two sitting on the roof, plus a driver and someone riding shotgun to protect the coach. It was rough and dirty traveling over little more than dirt trails. Mark Twain, upon taking stagecoaches throughout the West, declared the worst way to travel known to man. <laughs> Hardly the romantic journeys depicted in film. No one has really talked about how rough and wild old towns in the West were either. Open consumption of liquor was common, prostitution was de rigueur, and because of the limited bathing facilities, the smells would have been horrific. Forget about paved roads, most well-used town roads were muddy from constant pounding of horses, hooves, and wagons, and let's not forget about the thousands of pounds of manure produced by the horses. <clears throat> Life in the Old West was hard. Some people disturbed by the lack of trees in the Midwest would go crazy. This was brilliantly illustrated in a movie called The Homesman with Hilary Swank several years ago. The lack of trees, water, and civilization would send women running into the grasslands never to be seen again. And speaking of grass, we can't forget about grass fires, dust storms, crop failure from drought, and the resulting famine that those things would bring. Then there was the Hollywood rehabbed history of the Indian Wars of the 1870s, when intrepid American cavalry would regularly attack, raid, and eventually imprison native tribes on reservations. One of the biggest myths about the Old West is how westward expansion hurt the people that were there incidentally, already living in the West. So let's talk about that from the first, because they were long here before the first European foot ever set its toes westward. For native tribes, westward expansion was horrific and traumatic. This trauma began from the earliest days of European colonization of what is now North America. From the Spanish in South America to the French and British in North America, mass slaughter was common either directly or by disease. As the young nation of the United States began to expand west in the early 19th century, tribes were moved out wholesale. The most famous of these forced migrations was the Trail of Tears, where the Cherokee, which had been living in what is now North Georgia, were wholesale removed from their land, despite their best efforts to compete with the United States. They quantified their language in an alphabet, started a newspaper, and even formed a parliament. However, this did not stop the young nation from removing them. This would occur throughout the Louisiana Purchase. Tribes of people had their entire civilizations uprooted and were forced ever farther west. This would happen multiple times as white settlers sought ever more land. Often tribes were only given the most unusable land on which to live. These reservations were supposed to keep native tribes out of the ways of the settlers, but it rarely worked out that way. 
There was not respect for the native tribes, their traditions, sacred places, or way of life. There are also remnants of previous pre-Columbian civilizations around the West. When I was a kid, we visited Mesa Verde, which is a large Anasazi village. No one knows what happened to the Anasazi, but many suspect that even that their corn agriculture was destroyed due to drought and they had to leave their adobe buildings, built so carefully into the canyons of southern Colorado for points elsewhere with water. The harsh climate kept many tribes on the move, but those who secured consistent water would oftentimes stay in place. Plains tribes like the Ute and Shoshone, which had very little agricultural tradition, were told to farm basically useless land. The reservation system was created through a series of treaties with various tribes. The U.S. famously did not respect those documents because, let's face it, native tribes weren't seen as human and not worthy of respect. This was especially apparent in the residential schools where native children would be sent to be crushed with their entire culture and language and made to be quote-unquote civilized. The legacy of that in Canada is just now being reckoned with. Back here in the U.S., much of that history and the trauma of that remains untold and unreconciled. The legacy of the terrible reservation system exists to this day. There are still reservations in this country for native tribes. Crime is high both within the reservation and due to non-native people coming onto tribal land to commit crimes. Sometimes on social media you'll see people mention the epidemic of native women going missing randomly from reservations and little effort is ever made to try to find them. Before we talk about the rest of how the West was won, we need to take a moment to acknowledge the civilizations that were crushed, the people wantonly killed, and the cultures and languages that were lost due to this type of colonization. This vast continent boasted wonderful civilizations that were simply wiped out for the sake of colonization. The entire West lives in the shadow of this great tragedy and loss, and as we continue on, let's bear that in mind. In the pre-industrial agrarian U.S., land was an important resource as growing crops was how most people fed themselves. Most people sold very little of what they grew, they used it for their own family. Although, as production increased and mechanization came in, this would change. The Midwest tended to be good farmland, many a fortune was made on that largesse. However, farther out where the climate was drier, cattle ranching was a better means of generating profit. By the mid-19th century, the national taste for beef had grown considerably. Ranchers out west built legendary empires of beef production. In the 1850s, the Chicago Meatpacking District was the busiest in the country and one of the busiest in the world. One of the biggest myths about the West has to do with cowboys and those cattle drives. The cowboy is a potent symbol of individualism in the American mythos. However, most people don't know that cowboys are mostly black and Hispanic, not white. And the practices that are practiced at rodeos around the West actually originate with the vaqueros in Mexico that predated American expansion westward. They were trained by the Spanish and had a culture all their own. The American cowboy is sort of an anglicized copy of that tradition that began with the Spanish arrival in the New World. The cattle drive was the process of collecting all the cattle and driving them to the railhead to be taken back east for slaughter. You can see remnants of this process today by visiting the Fort Worth Stockyards, the Oklahoma City Stockyards, and the National Western Stock Show in Denver. Growing up, we always talked about how the perfect stock show weather in January was cloudy and slightly cold. No matter if you were farming or ranching, one of the things that was always hard to find in the West was water. There's just simply not enough of it, and this, the competition over water always occurred between the farmers and the ranchers. The farmers need it for their crops, the ranchers need it for their cows, and there's not enough of it going, going around. There's an old saying in the West, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over. Fights over water in the West go on to this day with growing cities in Phoenix, Denver, and Southern California demanding ever more water from a finite resource that doesn't always flow. No matter what happens, the West cannot exist without water and plenty of it. The West is still a huge agricultural basket. Most of your corn comes from as far east as Iowa and as far west as Arizona. When it comes to cattle and beef production, most of the country's beef is made also in the West. Even though these industries don't have big cattle drives and cowboys on horseback, although there are some ranches that still practice that way, those industries are still a big part of agriculture in the West. And that also means that fights for water go on as well. California is in the national spotlight for that as well, but those fights also go in in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, even as far north as Idaho and Montana. 
even in Wyoming, everything is dependent on water. Nothing moves without it. And no history of the West is complete without talking about farming, ranching, and water. Stick a pin in this idea about water. We're going to return to water and resources in a minute because there's a lot of history around that that I want to dig into a little bit later. But farming and ranching was not the only way to make money in the West. Far from it. If you had an idea to set your eyes westward and go make your fortune the great expanse of the American West, there was another way, provided you could find enough water, to make your fortune. There be gold in them thar hills. In 1849, gold was discovered in California, and millions of men rushed westward to take advantage. No, I'm not being sexist. It was mostly men. In fact, that's what the uh, the movie A Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is based on. Also, Paint Your Wagon. Both great musicals, both great movies. Called 49ers, these men read stories of plentiful gold ripe for the picking. Bear in mind that at this time in California, in the mountains, gold was so common you could pick it up off the ground in some cases. Panning for gold and streams and rivers were making men rich overnight. Boomtown soon sprung up and California was becoming incredibly wealthy. More gold rushes would follow in the years following the 49ers. Gold rushes in Colorado, Montana, and Nevada would follow between 1850 and 1860. In my town in Colorado, Henry Ralston found gold in Ralston Creek and the little town of Arvada, which is now a major suburb of Denver, was formed in 1854. Gold mining was responsible for much of the settlement in the West. The West Coast was a different story. With more water, agriculture was more practical in Oregon, Washington, California. However, in Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, it was known at the time, and for good reason, as the Great American Desert. <clears throat> Ranching and mining required much less water and were more profitable than attempting to farm. However, farming did take place in many areas when it was practical to create an irrigation system. More on that in a minute. We're going to get to irrigation and how it changed the West. We'll stay on gold for now. The Alaskan gold rush wouldn't start until 1891 and would continue well into the early 20th century until World War I demanded that many either go to war or do other mining for the war effort. Gold mines with a mine for Alaska gold mining would outfit themselves here in Seattle in Pioneer Square. You can still see some of the historic signs announcing an outfitter's shop for those heading north to Alaska. Ships from the port of Seattle would leave the Puget Sound up the Straits of Juan de Fuca and across the Gulf of Alaska to Juneau and elsewhere to disembark men looking to make their fortunes in the great cold north. After World War I, gold mining in Alaska would pick up again and continue well into the 1940s until the beginning of World War II. Gold mining in Alaska today continues, superseded only by black gold, oil. The surface gold collected by the first miners was quickly used up. Then mining operations were soon set up to mine other gold that was farther down. The miners who didn't strike it rich on their claims would soon sell off their land and then go to work for various mining companies that were set up across the West. Gold, silver, and other metals needed to power the new industrial mills back east would pop up. Copper, molybdenum, iron, coal, and other resources would all be extracted to build the new nation. New millionaires were created out of these metals, too. In Denver, people like John Tabor and the famous Molly Brown made their fortunes in silver. Molly Brown started out as a waitress in a mountain mining town and became one of the wealthiest women in Denver and gained even more notoriety for surviving the Titanic disaster, generating a play and a movie called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. You can still see the history of mining in the West. Where I grew up in Denver, if you drive out Highway 93, you can see an old wooden mining operation still standing alongside the road. If you drive up into the mountains, you can see old mine shafts and other workings from I-70, Old Route 6, or even US-40 as it snakes it way west. Mining is as integral to the west as anything else. Towns came and went because of a gold strike or a silver strike. Mountains were blown apart, mined apart, picked apart in order to get those valuable resources that this country was able to take advantage of. And indeed, so much of everything we see around us started out as a rock or a bit of metal in the ground that somebody mined out. And the tradition of that in the West 
not as much as it used to, but oftentimes continues to this day, whether it be for gold or anything else. One problem though, whether you are farming in the Midwest, ranching cattle in Texas, or mining in Colorado, all that stuff had to get back east. And all your only options for a long time were the wagon. And that was very difficult. They needed a faster way to get from east to west. And that's where the railroad came in. First came the stagecoach, then came the iron horse. Stay together, side by side, on the wagon train. 
Someone asked me once why on earth we ever built a transcontinental railroad. Why did we need to get from the east to the west coast via rail? The answer, like everything else in this country, is simple and complicated at the same time. The first two ways to get west were wagons or handcarts and ships. San Francisco was the home port of call for ships that would sail from New York around the southern tip of South America and then north again to California, usually San Francisco. The trip was long, dusty if you went by land, and dangerous if you went by sea. This meant that anything traveling from east to west took extra time over the various trails that snaked across the west. Immigrants traveling west faced dangers of their own, and a new, more efficient way of moving things east to west was sought. The steam engine had begot the railroads, and when, with that innovation, a desire to be able to get from San Francisco to New York east to west and all the resources from west to east was important and by 1869 by building from california on the one end and uh, new york on the other they met in ogden where they drove in the first stake now before we get into all of that we need to think about railroads in the civil war because we started the transcontinental railroad right at the tail end of the civil war and the politics and attitudes of the time played a great deal into how the Civil War was constructed. We were not joined back together north to south in 1868, but instead we were joined from east to west. This enabled people to skip that stagecoach and wagon or the ship and travel by rail instead. This also enabled goods like cattle and mining products to travel easily from their sources in the west to meat packing plants and industrial plants in Chicago and farther east. The construction was difficult and hard. From the west, they had to cross three mountain ranges. From the east, they faced the Great Plains where there was fuel shortages, water shortages, all other kinds of shortages. Pl plenty of shortages. <clears throat> they also faced tornadoes, grass fires, and inclement weather. The construction of the Transcontinental Road was a huge undertaking. They had to cut through hills so as to not use too much fuel trying to get up them at a or to, or to have too much of a grade. They had to constantly look for food and fuel and transport what one reporter described as hell on wheels. A lot of newly freed slaves ended up working on the Transcontinental Railroad. The need for manual labor was so great that it was a tremendous opportunity for freed slaves to join the operation and build the railroad from the east. In the West, they used Chinese people as a free source, as not a free source of labor, but a very low paid source of labor. Um, there was many Chinese immigrants at the time, and many of them already had skills in mining works from China. So they recruited them to blast through three mountain ranges to get the railroad off of California and into the Rocky Mountains. This unfortunately led to many unknown nameless Chinese miners and railroad workers being killed to complete the railroad. Now, admittedly, working on the California to Utah portion was far dangerous than the eastern portion. The Great Plains, while dry, are relatively flat, not so many mountain ranges to cross. The west, they had huge mountains, uh, they had huge mountain ranges to get through, and that meant things were a lot more dangerous. And however, that did not stop them from needing to cross rivers and build trestle bridges and everything else. Some of the first uses of the new technology of dynamite were used in the mountain ranges in order to create the Transcontinental Railroad. It was built mostly of wood, wooden railroad ties, wooden trestle bridges, all this type of thing. There was terrible land speculation around the railroad as well. Uh, new towns popped up. People would sell people on back east about the railroad was coming to this town and they had better buy land now while it was very cheap even though the railroad might not be coming anywhere near that town so there was lots of land speculation even where the railroad was already and they knew it was going to be there because it was already finished there was still more land speculation as people sought to buy up land from the railroad for cheap and then sell it to somebody else for more on the promise of the commerce that would result from the new railroad there's a wonderful TV show called Hell on Wheels that was uh, incredibly, uh, it was an incredibly good but fictionalized depiction of what it was like to build the Transcontinental Railroad. It's also important to remember that this was the largest land grant for rail in U.S. history. Congress acquired this giant strip of land, 
gave it to the railroads with the instruction that they build a road. And the railroads owned that land. Many of the towns along the railroad were railroad owned well into the 20th century. So in terms of a transfer of wealth, you couldn't do much bigger. However, before the railroad was finished, the West played a role in the Civil War. Colorado was the site of the most Western battle of the Civil War and sold golden material to both sides. We were nonpartisan. Also, remember that the expansion of slavery to the West had led to the Compromise of 1850 and laid the groundwork for the Civil War a decade before the first shot was fired in South Carolina. Kansas was the site of early violence due to the Free Soil Movement that advocated for the idea that anyone on the land in Kansas Territory should be free and not bound to anyone, free to work the land and make their fortune. While the West was not a primary battlefield of the Civil War, it still played a part in the national consciousness. After the Civil War, many disaffected Southerners would move West to start their lives over again. Now, thanks to that Transcontinental Railroad, those cattle drives that we've heard so much about would become very important. Cattle drives would gather cows from grazing land, drive them to the railhead, and they'd be loaded onto rail cars and sent to Chicago to be turned into steak for the ever-growing appetites for meat back east. Indeed, railroads solved the problem of being able to get meat to market more quickly and on time. And like I said, you can still see the legacy of that today. The, rail, the ability of the railroad to open the West to immigrants, to goods, to services, to mail, replacing the Pony Express, allowing the telegraph to come through a decade later, the American West today wouldn't exist without the railroad. Rail even remains a big part of the West today. It's the primary mover of freight across the country. It opened up to the West to people. Towns along the railroad grew exponentially. Cheyenne, Laramie, Ogden all grew up around the railroad and the commerce that came with it. When the railroad bypassed Denver for the flatter route in Wyoming, many people thought that Denver was going to dry up. However, a branch line was quickly built to Cheyenne and Denver continued to grow. Rail would remain the primary way of getting around in the West. Once you stepped off the train, it was back to horse or wagon to the farthest reaches of the remote mountains, valleys, and plains. However, although the rails would open up the West in ways that would power so much of what happened in the latter decades of the 19th century, up to and including the terrible Indian Wars of the 1870s, the arrival of telegraph and telephone and all that sort of thing, there was one more innovation this country had up its sleeve that would really make the West accessible to everyone. And that would be the advent of the automobile. And once that happened, and once World War II was finished, all of a sudden, there was a whole new way to get around the West.
Chief, you get crossways of me and you'll think a thousand of brick have fell on you. Feeling right sugar like a kid. Well, they whip kids to teach them better. They what? Laredo, Teeler, climb to that wagon wheel. Well, here's my word. Get the hell off my spread. Now. Nobody. And nobody run in here either, huh? Chance? Uh, I'm not gonna hurt him. Get up. I don't hold jail against you, but I hate a liar. Get down off them horses. I don't favor looking up to the likes of you. I'll count three. And if you're not out of the hospital, then I'll loose the dogs on you. If you say three, mister, you'll never hear the man count ten. No hard feelings. Cherry was right. You're soft. You should have let him kill me, because I'm going to kill you. I'll catch up with you. I don't know when, but I'll catch up. Every time you turn around, expect to see me. There's one time you'll turn around, and I'll be there. I'm going to kill you, man. Well, son, since you haven't learned to respect your elders, it's time you learn to respect your betters. You can call me father, you can call me Jacob, you can call me Jake, you can call me a dirty son of a bitch. But if you ever call me daddy again, I'll finish this fight. You goddamn mean dirty son of a bitch! I wouldn't make it a habit calling me that, son. Now you understand. Anything goes wrong, anything at all. Your fault, my fault, nobody's fault. It don't matter. Simple as that. We'll have some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. The men are beat. They've had a pretty tough day. I think you know. I'll do the thinking. Keep them going. You want that gun? Pick it up. I wish you would. There'll be no locks or bolts between us, Mary Kate, except those in your own mercenary little heart. You hurt? No. That's for risking my grandson's life. You do that again and I'll break every bone in your body. Guard, give me a rifle. What is this? You can't learn the easy way, you'll learn the hard way. I'd make a thrust. What, without a scabbard? You heard me. You mean this way? Yeah, like this. You get the idea? Carmen! Go on. You try to cut that rope. No, you got me scared. You do it. You better marry that girl, Matt. Yeah, I think I... When are you gonna stop telling people what to do? All right, Buster, what do you do? Yeah, I'm 30 years older than you are. Had my back broke once, my... Hip twice, and on my worst day, I could beat the hell out of you. If I can't teach you one way, I'll teach you another. But I'm gonna get the job done. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! Not so fast, Mr. Boss of the whole country. Unless you want to wear a big hole in your middle. How long is GW gonna let that Cheechocker push him around? That Cheechocker has a sawed-off shotgun. How do you know she didn't wander off someplace or meet some fella or something? What are you saying? That I didn't raise my girl right? That she'd wander off all night with some man? There's a lot of things I'm not saying to you, mister. Well, you got a sawed-off shotgun in my middle. But how do you know this Indian had anything to do with it? She's gone, ain't she? She's gone. Pa! Pa! I'm over here! Pa! Been looking for me, Pa? Where you been, gal? Young Ben took me for a sunrise ride, and the horse wandered away. <laughs> you come down over there. Papa! She's telling the truth, Mr. McClinic. We wasn't doing nothing. Well, that's not important right now. The important thing is that you don't draw that hog leg, or this will be worse than Dodge City on Saturday night. You get on back to the wagon. I'll tend to you later. 
now for this young whippersnapper. Now, no harm has been done. And young Ben here is one of the nicest boys in the territory, so just put down that shotgun I'll and let's teach forget... him to fool with Mike. Now, we'll all calm down. Oh, he's just a little excited. I know, I know. I'm gonna use good judgment. I haven't lost my temper in 40 years. But, Pilgrim, you caused a lot of trouble this morning. Might have got somebody killed. And somebody ought to belt you in the mouth. But I won't. I won't. The hell I will. If you want to hear the whole story of the interstate system, there's another episode about this this season on the Cameron Journal podcast. The interstate system was just as important to the West as was the railroads. It allowed people to drive their cars across the great expanses of the West. Although the interstate is certainly easier to drive on, U.S. Highway Route 66 became famous thanks to Bonnie and Clyde's crime sprees in the 1930s. The famous song Get Your Kicks on Route 66 was a popular banger if you were alive in the 1930s. I-90, 80, 70, and 40 joined us by car from east to west. You can drive continuously from ports along the east coast all the way to California, Oregon, and Washington State. Although I should note, the end of I-90 is not that impressive. You go through a tunnel that announces that you're arriving in Seattle, and it ends at the football stadium where the Seahawks play here in Seattle. However, despite its rather lackluster ending, and the fact that I can never get in the right lane to get onto the off-ramp I need to get home and always seem to have to force my way over because that interchange just wasn't planned very well, the interstate opened up the West in all sorts of new ways. Rather than being limited to just the railroad, you could travel anywhere you wished, pile U.S. highways on top of that, and you could get to all sorts of small towns. You get to the most remote places. You're able to drive in the national parks and all sorts of things. The, the ability of transportation across the great expanses of the West really made it accessible to people. And... It wasn't just wagons and then railroads. It was also cars, too. All of these things added up to bringing the West closer to everyone. Now that we've talked about getting around the West, the Transcontinental Railroad, gold mining, other types of mining, I want to return to that thought about land farming and resources. Because mining wasn't the only industry thriving in the West. Farming was a major industry and continues to this day. For areas of the West where water was available, the land was rich and ready to farm. Now, in the 19th and early 20th century, a lot of people attempted to farm in very dry areas. However, due to the fact that it doesn't rain a lot in places like Nebraska and Kansas and eastern Colorado and all this type of thing, and the wind was so terrible, oftentimes the crops would just be blown over. I mean, some of the descriptions of people writing in their journals trying to farm in Nebraska before irrigation are quite sad and quite dire. A lot of farms never got off the ground. They just simply went under. However, there were some farming projects that did very well, and that mostly had to do with the ability to irrigate. Where water was a scarce resource, irrigation was the primary way to make uh, the rich farmland um, able to grow crops. I went to college in a town called Greeley, Colorado. At Greeley, which was called Union Colony when it was founded in 1851, um, was founded by a group of people in New York City who were primarily middle-class tradespeople and professionals. And when they discovered the land was too dry to farm effectively in what's called Pleasant Valley, they built the original Canal Number no. 3, bringing water from the mountains across the plains to their farms in Pleasant Valley. It was long, hard, tough work, but you can still observe Canal Number no. 3 to this day. Um... And ditch number three. 
And they were uh, able to bring that water to Pleasant Valley and spread it out over the farms and create a wonderful, incredibly wealthy community. Um, unlike other towns in the West that were kind of wild and woolly, those who lived in Union Colony had to sign a very specific contract about morals and values and all this type of thing. And so Greeley grew very well, not only because of the quality of the people they had, unlike other towns in the West, but also because they were able to irrigate. Farming in eastern Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska was difficult without steady rain. The native grasses and prairie that had first been observed by Lewis and Clark in the early part of the 19th century were well suited to the dry climate. Wheat, corn, and other crops required a lot of water and were not well suited. By the 1930s, this dryness and overproduction of farming and irrigation would result in a huge natural disaster called the Dust Bowl. Um, I don't want to get too much in the Dust Bowl right now, but there's a great Ken Burns documentary called The Dust Bowl, and I highly recommend you watch it because it has wonderful pictures and even a little bit of footage um, of the great clouds of dust that would be swept up by the winds and the drought and would spread all the way to the East Coast at some points. Whole farms were destroyed. After the Dust Bowl ended, the government paid people to do land mitigation where they took all the dirt and put it back to where it was. They also encouraged farmers to grow crops differently. And most importantly, in the early 1950s, pivot irrigation came along. They were able to drill wells down to what we call the Ogallala Aquifer. And they were able to pump the water up and irrigate their crops. And when the crops were in place, the dirt stayed as well. It is only thanks to pure pivot irrigation that farming is possible in much of the Midwest. There are still ditches and ditch companies that supply water and farmers, but most farmers rely on the, that pivot irrigation system in order to make their farms practical. And that is why, remember when I said we were going to return to thinking about water? Because no matter how much land you have, no matter how, how much cattle ranching or farming or mining you're doing, everything comes down to water. I always kind of tell friends who are not from the dry West, when I call my family in Colorado, I can guarantee what the first 10 minutes of any conversation is going to be about. Water. Has it snowed? Has it rained? How's the weather? How's the moisture? Do you need to water your lawn? Do you need to water your garden? When I was growing up, grandma would always ask folks coming down from the mountains how Dillon Reservoir was. It's the primary reservoir for Denver, and whether it was up or down or how full or empty it was could tell how much snow the mountains had gotten and if we were going to have water that year or not. I can scare friends from back east by talking about water restrictions we used to go through in the summers when I was in high school when we were in a 20-year cyclical drought. But I can also tell stories about the 500-year flood in 2013 when I stood on Spear Boulevard in downtown Denver and Cherry Creek was splashing onto the road from its natural course 30 feet below. Water in the West is a constant hot topic when you don't know where it's going to come from and if you're going to have enough. However, besides water, the other most important resource in the West is oil. The West saw another boom when oil became a primary resource in the 20th century. Oil derricks shot up all over the West and millionaires were made overnight. The Coen brothers in their brilliant movie, There Will Be Blood, catalog the rise of oil barons in the West very well. Most of Colorado was once underwater, so there was plenty of plant matter to turn into oil. And from Texas to the East to California in the West, oil was the second coming of gold. People who owned land that was poor farming often found out they were sitting on wealth of a very different variety. Even today, with oil shell fracking, oil is still a big business out west. Large refineries in Wyoming supply gasoline, jet fuel, and other products to the entire nation. And, incidentally, oil shell fracking takes a lot of what the west doesn't have a lot of. Water. So even with oil, water is still a constant issue in the west. There's too many people too many needs and not enough of it and if there's any one thing that i always kind of remember about living in the west is water and the lack thereof one of the things about the old west that i think has been depicted in movies and films the most is its seeming lack of law and order I think it has to do with the vastness of the open space and the lack of people. And we're going to talk about how West the Vast is in a minute. But we can't go on without talking about 
the lack of law and order in the West. In popular movies, you have the lone sheriff defending his small but well-meaning and moral town. It's a trope of Western movies. The gunslinger, a vagrant criminal and a man with no roots in a community, was often his villain. The gunslinger would come to town and try to rob everybody or take everybody or take out the sheriff and own the town and make everyone work for him and all this type of thing. And it was up to the moral upstanding citizens to take this man down. That's not quite what happened, but there was, due to a lack of a certain amount of civilization, a sort of laissez-faire attitude when it came to uh, law and order in the West. Um, there were, you know, a lot of towns were completely wild. As I said before, prostitution was de rigueur, open consumption of alcohol, all this type of thing. And oftentimes law and order was hard to find. Um, there was very little in terms of adjudication with judges. Um, there was, you know, a sheriff might have to go over a whole county. Um, many of these areas were territories, had to organize governments. Um, there was a whole, you know, kind of the functions and institutions of civilization for a lot of areas of the West simply didn't exist. You were as good as your word and as fast as your gun. And oftentimes if someone was coming around to scam a miner out of their claim or get a farmer off their land or, you know, try to take someone from someone, there wasn't a whole lot you could do. There wasn't anyone to step in and intervene for you. You had to stand up for yourself. And I think that that lack of civilization in the West gives people who live here a certain independence and a certain stick to and a certain stand-up idea that I don't think it really exists in other places. Out here, you kind of have to do things on your own and manage yourself and and do for yourself as best you can. And you can't really think about other people all the time because the nearest human being may be miles away. And that's funny you should mention that because that gets into how vast the West really is. And that's what always impresses me about it. One of the great projects of this country, besides transcontinental railroads, interstate systems, and museums, is America's national parks. America's national parks have been called America's best idea. And I think it is America's best idea. Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir wanted to preserve the stunning beauty and natural features so that it wouldn't all be chopped down and mined and all this sort of thing. I mean, by even by the late 19th century, we had chopped down most of the Pacific Northwest. We'd mined out, you know, Golden California. We had mined out Golden Colorado. We had exploited the wonderful resources. We'd even begun to dam the rivers. We had, you know, captured salmon from the salmon runs. We had, you know, just taken all of this wonderful bounty. And Teddy Roosevelt had the vision after seeing the vast expanses, the stunning waterfalls, the jagged peaks, that some of this should be preserved and to be enjoyed by everyone. And th this idea, which was very new at the time, of preserving land because of what it was, not what it could do for humanity, and that nature and natural life had value was so transformative and we were the first country in the world to say no on this land in these areas we're gonna we're gonna keep that we're not gonna destroy it we're not gonna mine it we're not gonna chop it down we're going to keep it the way it is because that has value that beauty is important and I think that whole idea of having these great expanses where people can go and explore and enjoy nature and enjoy their country is very much truly America's best idea. There are so many wonderful national parks, be that Zion or Arches or Yosemite or Glacier or Yellowstone. There are all these wonderful, tremendous places and the only reason we still have them today is because they had the foresight to preserve them for future generations. And it is that 
wonderful expanse that I think makes the West so special. You know, there's long distances. There are areas where there are practically no humans whatsoever. There's an 18-mile section of Yellowstone that I guess is basically lawless. The Constitution laws and whatnot don't apply there because no state will claim it. Um, people tend to live in towns and cities because the next person could be miles away, unlike back east where you have to have a town every five or ten miles. Um, and you just get these wonderful expanses of no other humans, just prairie dogs and deer and bison and grasses that move like water. And and some of it is so flat on a clear day in some parts of Kansas, you can see six states because the sky is so clear and open to you. Montana is called the big sky state for a reason, and it lives up to the hype. Montana is genuinely beautiful, and it's so expansive you feel like you can see to the ends of the earth. Then there are the winds of Wyoming, the badlands of the Dakotas, the craggy mountains of Colorado, the dusty deserts of New Mexico and Arizona. It's nothing like the deep redwood forests and winding rivers of the east or the the modest mountains of the Appalachians. It is truly a unique biome, a unique environment, all of its own. And when I, I was recently traveling from Seattle to Arizona and back again, and the whole drive took six days. And I was reminded in driving about 2000 miles round trip, how incredibly vast the West is with just mountains and sand and Seguro cactus, but then going over mountain ranges with wonderful trees and rivers and waterfalls and even traveling through California, which is my least favorite state. But even with that, with, you know, going through the Central Valley and seeing orange groves and all this type of thing, what a wonderful, unique environment the Western United States is. And I think it's wonderful to be able to share that with people. And that's why the national parks were truly America's best idea. So now we return to the beginning, how the West was won. That's the title of this episode. We've talked about farms, ranches, land, resources, immigrants, people moving out in wagons, the railroads. I haven't even gotten into how the states were formed. There was a great hit series on the History Channel called How the States Got Their Shapes. It was on about 15 years ago. You might be able to find it online somewhere, but they actually talk about the politics of how the states all got their shapes. And the ones out west are always very interesting. Um, I knew somebody back east who used to call them the square states or the box states because Colorado is a box and so is Kansas, Wyoming. Utah is kind of a box with a hat. New Mexico is a box with a foot. Arizona is a box with a bent corner. Nevada's kind of a box with a triangle on the bottom and all this sort of thing. And so um, it, that the politics of that is always very fascinating. There's weird quirks like in Wyoming, they wanted to spread out the wealth of the state. So the university is in Laramie, the state capitals in Cheyenne and the prison is in Rollins. That way, everyone gets to share in the largesse of state spending. Um, you know, it's just kind of all sorts of weird, weird, quirky things like all these states because they're so new and they were so little population and, you know, people made these different decisions. There were all sorts of just interesting quirks. Horace Greeley donated the land for the Colorado State Capitol. And when they were not building the Capitol, he put cows on it to graze there so that he, the state legislature would pass the money to build the building. Golden is still disappointed that it was the territorial capital of Colorado, but the state capital was moved to Denver. They're still bitter about that. I mean, the, the West is just filled with all sorts of these weird, quirky, odd stories. And that just makes it so, like, while the East might have the Civil War and the Revolutionary War, and Lord knows if a general in either of those wars stayed at a house, they put up a plaque. Um, these weird, quirky things in the West make the West so much special. It just makes it really neat. And when you stop and read about some of the, like, in Idaho, like, where people were settled and started, like, farming and... Or there was, you know, mining, or you still see old mining operations or all this type of thing, you just get a sense of the people that came out here and created civilization out of the wilderness. But as I also mentioned, it's important to remember the West wasn't won so much as it was occupied. 
European colonization changed the West from what the native tribes have been doing for thousands of years. <sighs> Winning the West is a bit of a misnomer. It had far more to do with occupation than anything else, and the entirety of the West sits on land that once belonged to someone else. Fortunately, thanks to modern efforts, some of these cultures have been preserved, and we can now enjoy their cultural and artistic achievements. However, we must honor the peoples who occupied this land before everyone else showed up and tried to bring European civilization out here. Having lived in both the East and the West, I am always stunned by the beauty of the West. Not to say that the East doesn't have its own beauty, but there is nothing like the American West. There just isn't anything like it. Stunning waterfalls, jagged peaks, snow-capped mountains, the independent spirit of the people. There are friendly people everywhere I go. I don't miss the random weather of the higher altitudes, and I am spoiled by being able to mostly avoid snow in Seattle, but I even kind of like the snow too. There's just nowhere else quite like it. And two years ago, when I was faced with a choice to stay in the East or come back West, like millions of people before me, I chose to come West. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.